0: welcome to experts only podcasts sponsored by clean capital you can learn more at cleancapital.com i'm your host john powers each week we explore the intersection of energy innovation and finance with leaders across the industry thank you so much for joining us Thanks for joining us today for an experts-only podcast. You can learn more and get more episodes at Clean Capital, our sponsor's website, cleancapital.com. And learn about our billion-dollar partnership with Carval Investors and some of the work that we've got going on revolutionizing the clean energy finance space. Really excited today uh, because we've got an amazing guest who is a legend in the space, Nancy Funn, who is now the managing partner of, of DBL Partners, Double Bottom Line Partners. Um, but Nancy's been working across so many parts of the in- industry in using the power of venture capital to promote social change and environmental improvement. She sits on boards uh, that include advanced microgrid solutions, off-grid electric, Primus Power, and has worked, uh, had been on the board of Tesla Motors, uh, and SolarCity as well. Fortune uh, has named her one of the world's top 25 eco-innovators, and Fast Companies uh, has her the 2016 list of most creative people in business. But what I really enjoy about today's conversation is we really look back in Nancy's career and how she ended up doing some of the work that she's doing and how she views the world and the investments they're making. What I really love that she talks about is how companies can never take for granted the consistent shifting landscape. And I think that's a theme you hear throughout this podcast when you're looking at policy and innovation and finance. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us on Experts Only Podcast.
1: My pleasure, John. Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: You've got an amazing background. You're so involved. And First of all, I can't even imagine how you schedule your life because there's between the companies <laughs> you're working with and the nonprofits and education. Uh, but I really want to step back for a second and talk about you know, how you ended up getting into the space. Uh, as we t- were talking off air, you, you studied anthropology at Stanford. What led you from that to a career focused on innovation in the environment?
1: Yeah, well, it isn't the, the most linear route, for sure. But there there is a path there that has worked well for me. And, and basically, when I studied anthropology at Stanford, of course, I did all of the usual studying of, of non-Western societies. But what I did is I I came back and got a master's and used the anthropological method to study what happens between scientific elites and the lay public in our society. And so I was really interested in issues of language and culture and small group kind of decision making, the the nonverbal aspects of of scientific expertise, uh, how that how that was infused in uh, policy and decision making. And so I wrote my thesis on uh, the recombinant DNA controversy at the time and and studied kind of how people make decisions. And it turned out that, you know, no surprise, but back then it was kind of novel, that people bring their demographic and psychographic profile to bear when they they make decisions about science and technology. And it, it isn't always that sort of objective enterprise that we all like to think it is. And so from that, it just it really got me interested in innovation and how does scientific progress happen. And then I had a parallel interest in the environment. My the day after I graduated, I went to work as an intern at the Sierra Club in Washington D.C. and oh, that's that's so that's been yeah that's been a passion of mine from a very early age. I got to work on the Alaska Wilderness Protection Act. So really, what you, the, the seeds were being sown back then for me to really go after sustainability. Uh, in the early years, of course, it wasn't from an investment or commercial point of view. It was from policy and advocacy, but also to uh, knit together that scientific community and and engineering leadership with how do you actually get things done in the real world where people aren't all engineers and they're not all scientists and they bring their baggage with them, frankly. So, um, you know, that when, when I, I hope when I describe it that way, it makes perfect sense that I would I would really be interested in the passing of the torch from a very carbon intensive 100 years uh, of the last right. century to a clean energy economy and all the flotsam and jetsam that goes along with that. Right. It isn't just, you know, if it were just the numbers, if it were just the science, you know, we would have uh, you know, been there, done that and moved on to something else by now.
0: Do you feel like you could go back and rewrite your thesis now sitting in these boardrooms where you've got scientists and and leaders and others wrestling with these big decisions?
1: It's 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 deja vu all over the over again <laughs> right. many times. And, and also that the whole culture of entre- entrepreneurs and and the profile of entrepreneurs as being change agents, you know, it's very reminiscent of kind of, you know, who in a society actually makes things happen. You know, that's what anthropologists, you know, one of the things they they think about and, and how does that work? And so, you know, the parallels are there. And so while, of course, I'm all in for STEM uh, and, 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 you know, have worked on those issues. I also feel if, if anthropology is your path or social science, go for it because there is a huge component to what we do now that requires that, that expertise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was an elementary education major. If it wasn't for the army, I'm not sure where I'd be today, but so if, <laughs> well, there you go. If, um, So you're interning at at Sierra Club. How do you end up making the decision to go back to Yale for an MBA? And then sort of what led you into the venture capital side of that?
1: Well, going to to the Yale program for me uh, was the way that I could feel comfortable getting a business degree. It's it's very hard to imagine today, but When I was in college, business school was not as popular, and and, and in fact, it was somewhat controversial. But when I was in Washington and then I worked at Stanford Medical School on a book about these kinds of issues, I I saw firsthand that while policy and NGOs and uh, not-for-profits played a key role, that really innovation was up to the, the private sector to scale. And so I realized that I had this big gaping hole in my knowledge that I you know I did not know anything about business because I hadn't really frankly been interested in it so when I applied to the Yale program it was the only place I applied it was because at the time and still today the Yale program offered you that business training but with a with uh, an infusion of other sectors NGOs and the public sector which I had worked in and so that that was important to me and it gave me the lexicon. It gave me the tools to understand how business works. And then, of course, you have to re- roll up your sleeves and do it to truly get it. And so, right. I worked at in- Intel for a few years. Had the pleasure of working for one of the founders there, Bob Noyce. And so, and, and Intel at that time was sort of like what Google and Facebook are today. I mean, it was a it was a very right. uh, young company, very exciting, um, still is today, but obviously is an older company. And so that. I, I loved that. I loved the um the communication mm-hmm. of technology to uh, the marketplace, which was something I hadn't done and, and, and also got involved in policy with Bob Noyce. And really the the decision to go into investing was more a personal decision. I was engaged to be married. I was going to be living in the East Bay. And frankly, I did not want to commute down to Santa Clara. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Everyone was always like so shocked that I thought you always wanted to do this. Well, it was actually, um, you know, invention is the mother of necessity, I, I had to find a job in San Francisco so that I could, um, not spend my life commuting. Even back then in the early eighties, it was a nightmare. And the only wrinkle in that is that there were no tech companies in San Francisco back then. That's another thing that people wow. forget. It was, yeah. it, it, it just hadn't happened yet. What, what was going on was on the peninsula. And so that opened my eyes to, well, what is in this, in San Francisco is the finance side of innovation of tech And so I was able, uh, fortunately, to get a job at Hambrecht and Quist, Bill Hambrecht, one of the early backers of the the tech revolution. And he was also one of the few people in the industry back then that was super active active in politics. So he kind of coming to H&Q allowed me to pursue my passion in terms of work, but also my my passion for kind of an avocation, which was kind of uh, getting involved in politics.
0: Yeah, you've really sort of blended those well throughout your career. The 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 obviously the business side, the technology side, the politics. But you know, I think you've got a really deep understanding, and you you have spoken about this publicly, but the deep understanding of the uh, of of policy and the the critical role policy can play, especially in the energy space. And I feel like there's so many entrepreneurs that don't think about policy until it's too late. Uh, Mm -hmm. it it really affects whether it be the regulatory structure of their company or or how they're going to enter a market, you know, in, in that experience, in those experiences, you know, how do you now take those, the message of policy into the boardrooms or leaders that you work with and what do you tell them?
1: Well, it's been a journey for sure, because uh, you're exactly right. Most entrepreneurs, especially, you know, 10 years ago, weren't really interested in policy. In fact, uh, many of them don't like it. They, you know, they're entrepreneurs for a reason to be unfettered and, and go after that marketplace opportunity. However, the what what I've seen and been encouraged by is that kind of the the smart entrepreneurs as soon as they realize that, you know, oh, there there is a public utility commission or there is uh, the investment tax credit that gets voted on in Washington, even you know, they're, they're, quick learners. And even though they don't, many of them still don't like it, the best of them embraced it or hired people that, that would embrace it. And so, uh, it was, you know, it's been an education for, for many and for all of us, really. I mean, we had no idea how, how politicized this field would, would become, right. But now that it's out there, um, I I see and and we see the benefits of engaging. You're not going to win every battle, of course, but you win you win more than you lose because we've got the you know the public on our side, we've got cost reductions on our side, we've got uh, global attention to to climate change on our side. So it's it's a pretty pretty rewarding activity. And so I also you know just take the pulse. It's not like if you want to be backed by DBL that you have to like love policy that's not it at all but you just have to recognize it's important and figure out a way to win at it and that's where we try to help
0: interesting yeah i mean having spent the last 15 years in washington right and, and seeing how many companies don't need help building that bridge right between silicon valley and, and dc i've always had the belief that that understanding policy really helps you understand where the market is going to not just who is a Wayne Gretzky that said skate where the puck is going not where it's where it's been and, and understanding policy helps you figure out where to get to, just to, to help. I think, I think open up, you know, get a foothold and open up opportunities.
1: Exactly. And I, I think that there's been a learning that while policy can be difficult and can block, uh, some markets, it can actually, it can actually catalyze markets. And so it, it pays to, to you know, understand it and, and, and jump in.
0: So I, w- I want to come back to some impact investing stuff in a little bit, but I, you know, really want to talk for a little bit, but also about leadership and, you know, you've had, um, you know, I think the ability because you've a, an amazing career to serve on some really interesting boards, you know, including Tesla and Solar City and and now Advanced Micro, uh, Advanced Microgrid Solutions and, and others. When you go, you know, you witness the growth and scales of companies that are really disrupting and and really transforming the energy landscape at the highest levels. So when you sit in those leadership meetings and have conversations about where folks are going, what are some of the lessons that you've pulled out that you can share with other founders or CEOs?
1: Well, one of the lessons is to kind of never take for granted the the shifting landscape around you be that technical cost, incumbents, policy, or, or all of the above. Uh because you know the 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 most dangerous thing you can do is to become complacent or to to think that you've solved a problem. Right. And so one of the, the most important lessons to learn is that there's always change and you're always vulnerable. You know it's you know you don't have to go around being paranoid and, and think that the you know, the world is going to crumble around you at every turn. But you do have to be uh, mindful uh, of of kind of what's coming up ahead, both on the good and the bad side. And so I think that seeing board board discussions, you know, one example would be the early days of solar. It's hard to believe the rooftop solar folks, you know, didn't think that much about utilities. They, they just thought, it's really cool to put solar right. on your roof and and that's what we're going to do and and we're going to find a way to finance it so it's it's more accessible and it was only a few years in that it you know people began to understand that the utilities actually you know had a role here and so what you saw over you know that decade that ensuing decade was a growing awareness um you know went through all of the stages of of denial, of of um, you know suspicion, of trying to work together. I mean, we've we've seen it all, and we've lived it all. But uh, you know, the, the best companies were able to navigate through that and become more productive and and functional, even though it the terrain was far more treacherous than they thought went going in.
0: Interesting, and I, I feel like that the, the landscape continues to shift and. You know mm-hmm. specifically in the in the energy space I uh, would love to talk about what you sort of see as the most exciting innovations I think that are that are coming and uh, obviously probably places where I imagine DBL is investing and in, and also maybe where you see some missed opportunities right like where do you see um, things that maybe should be being developed that aren't or maybe aren't just aren't there yet well
1: there, there's no shortage of opportunity. We we clearly believe, you know, looking at our portfolio, that transportation, that distributed uh, storage, and distributed clean energy, uh, along with sort of increasingly powerful AI-like software, right. uh, are are enormous trends. And the ability now to to work with utilities and regulators that have kind of figured out that all of this can be good for the grid it can be good for cost reduction it can be good for the customer choice issue you know this didn't exist even 5 years ago and so an advanced microgrid solution that you know pulls together the the, the storage assets with the the generation but also with the load reshaping in real time that Allows you know more effective grid management as and cost management, you know this this is our future and and it's just happening beginning to happen at you know bigger and bigger bite sizes. But that that is something that we see as inevitable because in the end, even though there's dislocation of various play, players, everyone's going to win in this scenario. And so that that we really like. Uh, we also as both. Financial and impact investors, we love the emerging markets opportunity because there you don't really have the incumbent uh, that you have here, and so in some ways uh, you're able to move a little more quickly, even though you know you do have other risks. So our our investment in a company like uh, Off Grid Electric, now called Zola Electric, that that brings distributed storage, uh, solar, and and efficient appliances to homes and businesses in Africa, you know, that checks all boxes because right. it's an e- it's you know if we don't give if we don't provide cheap clean electricity to that continent, we're going to have trouble because that's you know most of the population growth over the next 50 years is happening in Africa, in Africa and Asia. You know, it's going to Africa going to double by 2050. So we've got to do something to to supply the, the electricity that will build the economic framework going forward. And the good news is that we can do that. We have learned so many lessons from the U.S. experience that now we can apply to Africa, let Africans fund it, let Africans run it, but uh, allow them to leapfrog. And and we're, we're beginning to see that with technologies that we can't even get here, the, the ability to create self-assembling grids to... Um, To go in and out of the dysfunctional grid that you may have in in Nigeria, where you only get power a few hours. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so but all of that requires technical innovation as well as a huge feed on the street in in Africa, and so we're incredibly bullish on that. And what a lot of people don't understand is is that they while they're very, they're tiny they're much smaller than U.S. installations there are many many more installations in Africa than there are in the U.S. and that's just going to continue and you're going to get higher functionality.
0: So we, we you know we work at the intersection of clean clean energy and, and fintech and what's interesting I actually went back to your alma mater at Yale and gave a recent talk about what's happening for the the unbanked right the folks who in places like sub-Saharan Africa who now have access to financial institutions for the first time through their cell phones, which Mm -hmm. are then powered by, uh, in many cases, distributed energy systems that are, you know, they don't have a centralized grid, they don't have centralized banking. And, you know, it's Mm -hmm. amazing progress that's happening there um, because of some of the technologies that we're developing, but also technology that that they're developing. How do you... Yeah,
1: yeah. All of that, all of it's being paid with with cell phones. I mean, it's it's amazing.
0: How do you do diligence and make decisions. And maybe that's where the impact investing comes in. I would like to talk about that in a second. But, you know, how do you do diligence a, a, a portfolio company that's doing work in, in in emerging markets like that, where the business model can be completely different than, you know, a company that's that's doing a microgrid in Southern California, for instance?
1: Uh, good question. And, and especially for us, because our roots when we were part of J.P. Morgan were hyper local. I mean, we only invested in the Bay Area. So, you know the notion that we're investing in the company in, in Tanzania and, and Rwanda and moving into other in Cote d'Ivoire uh, is is a big leap. We didn't do it until our third fund, uh, and and we didn't do it without kind of wrapping ourselves around the opportunity with with friends and family. I mean, with people that we we knew from from working with them. Uh, that that they could kind of get through the the ine- inevitable troubles that you have as an early company. And so when we invested in Off Grid, the first time we learned about it was when I was on the board of Solar City because Solar City made an investment in the company because it, they just felt it was very compelling. Right. Of course, the Rive brothers from South Africa, so they had oh, right. had a personal interest. And and so I learned a lot about that company being a board member. And then was was able to, and also they have a technology component that's here in in San Francisco. And so while most of the action is in Africa, there there is a core here. And so we were able to get very good visibility on that and, and help them augment the the technology for these, for example, these self assembling grids that we're talking about with with technology uh, from this region. So there it wasn't as foreign as as people think, both in terms of the people involved and some of the, the technology underpinnings. And so we felt, you know, we know a lot about this market. We've been in it for many, many years. And we 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 have a lot of great contacts in the development community. Uh, so we thought well, we can, this is the, the kind of company that we can take a risk on because while it is unfamiliar in many respects, there are a lot of familiar aspects to it. And we also felt that in investing in this company, there would be some pretty important signaling going on that it would be, wow, DBL is investing in this company, right. and they they invested early in in, in Tesla and Solar City and uh, Powerlight, etc. Next tracker, so they must know something we don't, and so uh, we were hopeful that we would help to you know legitimize uh, this this sector and region, and that and that. You know, we didn't do it ourselves, obviously, but we did help make that happen because we had corporates come into the round. Uh, we have, uh, you know, like EDF, the total. I mean, we, we helped to, um, to, um, get them excited. And then we were able to develop some loan, you know, some first ever loan products that brought in some impact investors to cover right. the cost of the panels. Uh, and so that was the first, and, and now fast forward to today, we've brought in a Nigerian-based VC comp, uh, firm that led the last round, which was something we always wanted to have happen. We we never wanted this to be just Western people backing right. African
0: uh, entrepreneurs. So I want to get to DBL as a whole and impact investing, but I just have to ask since my we you know we we're talking offline. In my background, I got into this space because of uh, my time spent in Iraq and the Army and then working at the Pentagon on. Uh, energy security on our forward operating bases? Are you seeing any, I hate to use the word tech transfer, right? But from stuff that's maybe the military is doing in these forward operating bases into companies uh, that are doing work in sub-Saharan Africa or vice versa, right? Whether it be, you know, I think about uh, stuff that's needed in Afghanistan from solar powered water filtration systems, for instance, or advanced microgrids. Uh, is a very similar concept in the military is building these forward operating bases.
1: Well, we have we've been very uh, supportive of the military involvement in clean energy and also uh, grateful for it because they do have these extremely compelling use cases and so especially storage you know a very early uh, backer and and some of our storage companies their first systems went into military bases also the the uh, rooftop solar for bases and such so haven't really f- focused on that with our Africa company yet, to my sure. knowledge, but I'm sure it's on the horizon. I mean, I, I think that the-, the partnership between the various military or- organizations and this move to a uh, distributed clean energy future are, you know is one of the, the best stories out there.
0: So let's come back to, to DBL. And for folks that know DBL Partners, DBL stands for Double Bottom Line Venture Capital. You know, it really hits on the work you're doing, uh, both investing and, 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 and impact investing. So can you talk a little bit about f- starting DBL and, you know, how, wh- where the idea came from and maybe add some color for folks that aren't as familiar with the idea of impact investing?
1: Sure. So what happened is that when, when I, I mentioned I went to work at Hampton Quist, Uh, And I basically stayed there and I would have stayed there my whole career. I think (laughs) I'm not, you know, I, I worked there for 24 years and then we took, the company went public. We, and then we were acquired by chase and then chase acquired JP Morgan, which is how we ended up as part of JP Morgan for our first fund that, you know, gave us tremendous support to, to build the, build the impact effort. So what happened along the way at H and Q is that I, got into venture capital, started as a securities analyst, but but started investing in instrumentation stocks and and then developed a very early environmental fund in the 90s with Bill Hambrecht, which made some good investments, but was way too early. Uh, so then I just became a more traditional tech and life science investor. At the same time, this is when tech was being discovered by Washington and vice versa. Right. And it was, you know, President Clinton and Vice President Gore would be traveling to silicon valley a lot we got involved technet was created we were one of the founding members of technet and so there were, I I got the job of sort of managing all of that frankly cuz no one else in our firm wanted to <laughs> and I loved it i thought right. hey i you know i love investing but i also love you know this policy stuff and, and getting silicon valley more sophisticated uh, in the game and so what happened is that um, the Bay Area Council, one of the regional business groups that we are were a member of and that is uh, a leader here today, they this is when the dot-com boom was happening. They were getting criticized by community groups saying, hey, all this, this dot-com wealth isn't really helping Richmond or Oakland. It's kind of the same old, same old. Right. And so the, the Bay Area Council said, well, let's develop funds that pay attention to, to place, Be, they had a real estate fund and then they wanted a, a small business fund and so they came knocking on our door to say would you raise this fund and invest in it and and, and invest in high potential companies but help them uh, create jobs in neighborhoods that need them in low-income neighborhoods And so my boss at the time, uh, Dan Case, who sadly um, passed away very s- soon after of, of brain cancer, but he said, you know Nancy, you should do this. And and there was a lot of change going on because we had just been acquired by by Chase. And he said, you know, you love investing, but you also love this policy stuff. And you had two jobs. This fund would enable (laughs) you to have one job and do them both. And I couldn't deny that that was true. Although I never considered myself sort of, I, I like backing entrepreneurs. I never considered myself an entrepreneur. So that took me a while to, to get comfortable with that but we just set upon a course uh, had a small team uh, encountered many difficulties especially after the dot com crash when people had lost a lot of money in their venture portfolios the last thing they wanted was a new venture fund especially this sort of do gooder fund you know right. that was going to pay a pension to jobs but we persevered we got ford was our first investor we got MacArthur. we got a bunch of banks who were able to invest because of the CRA aspect. When when we invested in low-income neighborhoods, they got credit. And so we were off to the races. And it's funny, we didn't ever position it as a sustainability fund because that wasn't apparent in 2002, 2003. But by, by 2004, when we were up and running, we began to see that there were some companies around, PowerLight, our first solar investment, was creating great jobs in a low-income na- uh, neighborhood of Berkeley, and we were like, "Oh, okay, that's what we're supposed to do." So, <laughs> right. so I was able to tap into my own background in sustainability and apply it to the mission of our fund, mm-hmm. and pretty much morph those together. And so, from from that, you know, that was one of the reasons we looked at Tesla early on. Was like, "Wow, um, if there's a big car plant that employs a lot of people and." Maybe it will be in a region of, of California, of the Bay Area that really needs those jobs. So we, ha- you know, we had all the normal checklist, that, or we checked all the boxes as traditional venture investors in, in terms of wanting to have a successful management team and product line. But we also brought that impact lens, and you know, it it turned out to be very powerful, and the combination worked. And so we got through the 2008. Um, downturn and uh, you know that was a really difficult year for everybody but especially for us you know some of our companies were in peril at that time uh and th- and so finally we got through that and you know tesla went public into that 2010. we had sold power light to sun power so things were were getting to be quite positive and so we did we spun out of of jp morgan to create dbl in 2008, and from there we've we've grown and are now on our third fund. That first fund I talked about was a $75 million fund, and our last fund that we raised in 2015 was $400 million. Uh, so we've been able to benefit from the growing opportunity and, and the, the fact that entrepreneurs are all in for impact uh, increasingly, uh, as well as help to shape this, this field that we now call impact investing.
0: Fantastic. And did you meet Ira along the way? Did you meet him at J.P. Morgan? Like how did you guys decide to spin uh, this out?
1: Yeah, Ira was, of course, an early, early um, clean energy investor, and so we met each other during that period. We really got to know each other and like each other when we were both on the Tesla board and and going through, you know, very intense growing pains, which right. you know others have chronicled. And but we <laughs> we we definitely lived through that and. And, and saw that we, we kind of approached investments the same way, approached problem solving the same way. And so as we were thinking about our third fund and he was thinking about his next fund, we just said, well, wow, rather than just do this separately, why don't we just join forces? And so we were thrilled to create DBL Partners uh, as kind of the, the blend of technology partners, the clean tech practice of technology partners, where Ira had built such a great franchise and, and DBL investors, and so that's how we came to create DBL
0: Partners. Interesting. So as as we were talking before, we I had just moved my family literally last week from from Washington D.C. to New York. I didn't mention we're moving to Buffalo, New York. While our clean capital's headquarters is in New York City, I'm from Buffalo originally, and oh. know, I have actually full belief in the fact that you know this part of the Midwest, and other, other areas, has so much to add to the the innovation economy, and has not been tapped. Enough, and mm-hmm. we're, we're actually opening our second office in Buffalo because of because of that. That's um,
1: fantastic. Well, we, we're all in for that too. I mean, one of our our more recent areas of focus is food and agriculture. Oh thirty yeah. percent of carbon, of course, is generated in agriculture. Forty percent of the world's population works in agriculture, and we have you know almost ten billion people to feed over the next several decades, and it's not sustainable. And farmers are losing their land, and so. We actually, one of the themes that we're investing around is that and also bringing together the coast with America's heartland. We have a big data company called Farmers Business Network that does just that. It it helps farmers aggregate data. So we have 25 million acres of data and we see that, you know, farmer, one farmer on one end of the the county in Iowa is paying 30 percent more for the same seed that his neighbor Mm -hmm. is. And so there's been a lack of transparency. So we're able to, to solve a lot of those problems and, and and enable the farmers to make better decisions. We're helping them go organic by giving them more of a, a, of a sort of a sense of what it costs and what the risks are and what the benefits are. So, um, it's funny, I, I tweeted something a few weeks ago, you know, I forget what farmers business network had done, but, um, you know, I ran into them, the founders on the streets of, of SF. That's that's what I read. Right. Yeah, there was a story about that. And uh, someone tweeted, you know, you meant San Francisco for SF. But did you know the largest office for FBN is SF, meaning Sioux Falls, South Dakota,
0: <laughs> 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 which I
1: love? I mean, okay. and, and we all love because <laughs> the more we can bring together the coast with America's heartland, you know, and 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 help. You know, America's first entrepreneurs really were were farmers. Uh, help level the playing field and 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 make agriculture work again. Um, a lot of business opportunities, investment opportunities, but also a lot of healing opportunities for our country.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Well, th- thank you so. There's so much we could talk about, and I feel like we could go on for <laughs> forever. I've I do have one question, I always ask every one of our. Our listeners and if you know you could go back to yourself probably even before you studied anthropology at stanford coming out of high school or even even then coming out of college And you could give yourself one one piece of advice uh what would you tell yourself
1: oh that one is pretty easy for me because uh as i've talked about how crossing sectors is so important to my career and to solving problems the thing is when I first started, I didn't do that. I, I kind of, I mistrusted business. I, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder that not for, you know, like the Sierra club was, was the best place and NGOs. And so, uh, you know, I got rid of that chip on my shoulder. I still love those organizations, but I, I learned very early to change that attitude and to work across different stakeholder bases and and create unity and bridges rather than enforce kind of your opinions and stereotypes so that's what
0: i would recommend such an important message today especially with all that's going on especially politically across this country so (laughs) yes
1: yes that could be the whole subject of Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) totally
0: totally (laughs) nancy thank you so much i really appreciate your time
1: well thank you it's been a pleasure and and uh Again, thanks so much for having me on your show, John.
0: Absolutely. Well, we covered quite a bit in today's conversation. Venture capital, impact investing, the the energy space, and uh, anthropology can lead you to an incredible career in in innovation and the environment. And I want to thank Nancy for joining us and have a special thanks for our producers, Lauren Glickman, Emily Connor, and our intern, Greg Phillips, for their work. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. And as always, I look forward to continuing our conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.